Um, but uh, we are really glad that you're here today and grateful that you're making this a part of your weekend. To those of you who have been at Trinity for decades, a welcome. For those of you that are brand new, we're really glad you're here today joining us indoors, out in the pavilion, and online. We are going to continue in our series. You just saw this bumper video reminding us that there is a lot of tension, a lot of controversy in this section of the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible today, you can make your way to chapter 10 of John's Gospel. If you'd like notes for today, we have a paper copy in the back, as well as if you go on our app and go to resources and just click to, it's actually next week's date is what's on there, but it should, it'll be for today, um, the 22nd. And um, we'll kind of be able to follow along a little bit together. But um, what we have been in, in all of this kind of back and forth, right, between Jesus and these religious leaders of the Jews, has just been Jesus continuing to demonstrate himself out of the confidence of who he is and the confidence of his mission, And what we see is this antagonism, this opposition, this adversarial attitude week over week in this kind of narrative that continues. And today, what we've seen as of last week, we kind of go into part two of Jesus talking about who he is. He is the good shepherd. And so we get a little bit of reprieve from the tension, though it's clear he's talking to the Pharisees, and this he made that clear last week, we're continuing the conversation today, it's powerful for us who have put our faith in Jesus and realizing that indeed he is our good shepherd. Today you're going to see powerfully, what does that mean? What does that mean when he says that? What does that mean to be a part of the flock of God? And I hope you'll walk away today incredibly encouraged because this passage does that in a profound way. First off, in this kind of sheep shepherd concept we picked up last week and we see again today, let's be mindful of who you are in the story. Here's a hint. You're not the shepherd, okay? So we're these sheep. And, and we said this a little bit last week, that to be likened or compared to sheep, remember Jesus is talking to Pharisees, to the Pharisees' mindset 2,000 years ago, being likened to sheep in many ways was not a compliment. 2,000 years later, it isn't either. But what we have to do is take stock of reality, not of, of thinking we need compliments from God. Instead, we need to go, God, in, when I look in the mirror, who should I be seeing? Who am I? And what we realize is we are people who are deeply dependent, just like a sheep. We are people who are without a lot of defenses, just like a sheep. And so the parallels are consistent and they're accurate. And I want to invite you to see yourself today through that lens and to find joy in who you are, joy in the fact that we were never made to be independent people who just get it done on our own. That's a really good American mindset, but it's not necessarily super biblical. And a biblical attitude reminds ourselves, God, I need you deeply, and I am not able to make it on my own. And the joy that comes with that is when you realize the depths of Jesus' love for you that exceeds anyone else's. No one loves you like he does. When you realize that he tells you, he knows you intimately and deeply better than anyone else. That's how Jesus knows his sheep. And when he tells you that he's traded his life for yours and would do it all again so that you could be protected, so that you could be rescued, then there is great 
just comfort and deep sense of gratitude when we realize, Jesus, that's what it means to be your sheep in your flock. Words were penned by another shepherd a thousand years earlier than when Jesus was walking the planet. And in those words penned by David as someone who had been a shepherd, he realized a lot more that he was a sheep. So what we're going to do this morning, Psalm 23 is up on the screen. I want you to read it aloud with me. And in reading it together today, I want us to look at these words and I want you to think about the fact that this is what it is to be in the flock of God. Read along with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Something that I don't think I had noticed before, I began to kind of look at that psalm a little more intently. The first three verses talk about the Lord is. So this third person singular, Jesus, and, and we know that Jesus is the embodiment of this. So Jesus, you are these things. But then if you note in verse four, the language shifts from a he, from a shepherd, to a you. You protect me. You guard me. And guess where all that language begins? is in the context of trouble, in the context of going through the darkest valleys, in the context of, of not having fear, though death is on either side. And I don't know what's going on in your world today. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what challenges. I don't know what losses. I don't know what mountains you are staring at today. But I want to encourage you as we look at this passage today and see how Jesus is that good shepherd that maybe for you, he's been a he. But today in the midst of trouble, I hope he becomes a you. Jesus, you are this to me. Not that further removed, but that close, that needed, that personal. Today, here's our now what statement that we want to walk away with and be mindful of throughout the week this week. Celebrate the magnitude of the good shepherd's love for you demonstrated at the cross. Celebrate the magnitude of the good shepherd's love for you demonstrated at the cross. If you're taking notes of this today, number one, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep because he intensely invested in them. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep because he intensely invested in them. We're in John chapter 10. We pick it up at verse 11. Jesus speaking here. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
So let's get back into the context of where we were last week, because we're just continuing the flow of thought. Jesus had healed a man in John chapter 9, a man who'd never seen the light of day, a man born blind. And that completely caused this sense of awe, as well as, like we would expect, the religious leaders coming at him and wanting to criticize, and, and how dare he. And so within all this mix, this now we see in chapter 10, it flows right out of that narrative, that incredible miracle, and it finished with Jesus saying, Pharisees asking, so Jesus, are you saying that we're blind? Jesus says, no, you can see really well. That's why your guilt remains. And right into that, Jesus does kind of an odd thing. The, the conversation doesn't seem to change setting or any context. Jesus begins talking about sheep and shepherds. It just seems out of the blue, kind of like, where'd that come from? And so as he begins kind of giving almost like shepherding 101, this is what it's like for a shepherd to be the gate, to be the door, letting his sheep in and out, protecting them. Today, we just follow the same train of thought, and Jesus now refers to himself as the good shepherd. That's where we, we pick it up up until now. And what's interesting is what we had seen last time is we had seen Jesus making some comparisons to thieves and robbers, right? That's why a shepherd, a sheep pen needs a gate. And we said a gate is not a thing, it's a person in the first century. But it needs a gate because thieves and robbers want to come in over the walls or when the sheep are out, they want to try to get the sheep to go their way, but the sheep know better. They don't listen to that voice. So these are the different types of threats we saw in the first part of this passage. Today, we see a different type of entity, not so much a threat, but someone who doesn't have as much skin in the game. The owner of the sheep versus the hired hand. That's the contrast that Jesus is going to walk out in this next section that we're looking at. Three times in our passage today, Jesus is going to say that he lays his life down for his sheep. Three times in three different ways, Jesus is going to say that I value and love you. Let's not make it theoretical. I value and love you. That I am willing, ready, able, and looking now 2,000 years backwards, and did lay his life down on our behalf. I would hate to skip right over that. I would hate to miss that today and talk about it as though that's just common language and we just move right along. Has anyone ever died trying to save your life? Some of us might have that story in this room. Someone actually put their life on the line to save yours. This is what Jesus did. And, and Jesus wasn't just another good person, a good Samaritan in a, in a challenging situation. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, God's one-of-a-kind unique son, in order that you and I might be rescued from sin and eternal separation from God. He lays his life down so that we can be right with God. And I just, I'd hate for you to miss the magnitude of that today because we just talk about the cross in some sort of known and flippant way. This is what this passage is about. Now, he's obviously foreshadowing. He hasn't gone to the cross yet in John 10, but he's going to. And we'll see more of that today. The initial contrast uh, between um, this idea of the hired hand 
one who doesn't have this degree of ownership or investment in the sheep, and he runs away when there's trouble. By the way, can we just talk about this for a moment? I don't know the last time when you were exposed out in the countryside and a ravenous wolf came your way. That's me running the other way. I mean, honestly, but before we just kind of move past that and go, oh, that hired hand, what a loser. He just takes off. You know, big teeth coming at you, little red Robin Hood, you know, kind of teeth, wolf. I mean, I, I, I am really concerned about my own well-being in that place. And that's exactly the point. Jesus is saying that a hired hand is more concerned about his or her own well-being than about the sheep. And that's where the hired hand runs. So I don't think that Jesus is making such a contrast to say how poor and pathetic. What he's saying to more to the other side is how invested. How invested is the shepherd, the owner, because he's not going to run when things get hard. But he's going to stay and he's going to lay his life down if need be for the sheep. See, the owner is contrasted because he's not the one just receiving a paycheck, but instead he's one who's deeply invested. He's the one who purchased the sheep. He, in order to start a flock at some point, sheep had to be purchased. So the shepherd was the one who put money on the line and put it across the table so sheep could be his. He's the one who pays for the care and the cost of maintaining the flock. So he's invested financially in all these ways. He's also the one who benefits who benefits from what sheep produce, wool, milk, young. There is a payoff, there is a reward for being a good shepherd. So all of these things, this is the difference and how one and why one cares for the sheep, the shepherd does, versus the one who simply gets a paycheck. From the book entitled The Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, Philip Keller describes how hired hands cared for their flocks in relation to how he a shepherd who owned the sheep, cared for his. It's on, on the screen and in your notes. In my memory, I can still see one of the sheep ranches in our district, which was operated by a tenant sheep man. He ought never have been allowed to keep sheep. His stock were always thin, weak, and riddled with disease or parasites. Again and again, they would come and stand at the fence, staring blankly through the woven wire at the green lush pastures which my flock enjoyed. Had they been able to speak, I am sure they would have said, oh, to be set free from this awful master. And those are powerful words. If sheep could speak, right? If sheep could speak, this is what they'd say. I, I wish I could be there and well taken care of. In your notes, ownership determines commitment. Ownership determines commitment. Shepherds who have that kind of skin in the game, they are not gonna run when the wolf comes after the flock. They stay in it, they stick in it, thick and thin, because there's that kind of investment. Jesus declares himself to be that kind of shepherd, one who is responsible for the total quality of the sheep and is invested to the degree that he's willing to exchange his life for their well-being. That's the thing to deeply, deeply celebrate for us, the sheep in Jesus' flock. Number two in your notes today, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep because he relationally knows them. He lays down his life for his sheep because he relationally knows them. We pick it up in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. 
Watch this. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Man, I love this passage. Probably in all the section we're looking at today, this part's my favorite. And it's my favorite because of this. Note that what Jesus is saying is the relationship is more than I've made an investment financially. I've made an investment of time. I've made an investment in a weird way, even of reputation. I take good care of my sheep and other shepherds or hired hands around me notice that because of the way that they're cared for and loved. But Jesus says it's well beyond just that investment. It's also based on the fact that I deeply know them. Notice the way he makes a comparison, and we're going to see more of this the deeper we get into John in the upper room discourse, chapter 14, 15, 16, 17. We're going to see more of this talk that, that we, are to, we can be known, we can have that kind of connection with Jesus like Jesus has with the Father. That, that's kind of a crazy thought to think about. That kind of intimacy within the triune Godhead, Jesus knows us and we can know him in that way. And that is profound. This isn't a God to simply be, you know, salute and do what he tells you. This is a God who deeply knows you, wants you to know him. We'll talk in this section about this idea of relational knowledge. This is, the, this is the, the concept. When you and I might see a flock of sheep on a hillside, uh, again, I live in Yukaipa, right? It, it happens, okay? Others of you have to read about it in picture books, but I actually see uh, once in a while a flock of sheep on one particular part of Oak Glen Road. And when I see them out and about, whether it's 20 or 200, they're just fluffy mammals, on the hillside. That, that's the recognition, of, oh, those are sheep, as opposed to, oh, those are cattle. Like, that's about the level of distinction that I have. They're woolly mammals on the hillside. I have no way nor an interest to discern Sally from Billy. I just don't care. They're sheep. They all look the same to me. Not so the shepherd intimately, deeply knows the flock, sheep by sheep. And we think about that contrast or that example in our own lives, and it might not be true of barnyard animals, but it's true in other relationships. Your kids might be playing at a park, and you've kind of stepped aside to do something or say hi to someone, and when you come back and there's a gaggle of kids in the playground, You're listening and you're looking and you probably even before you ever see your child, you hear their voice because you know it well. They're not just a gaggle of children. Your kid is in the middle of that. And you connect. It would be very different if someone said, hey, my neighbor's son or daughter is down at the park. Would you go find them? You've seen them before. You maybe even had them over at your home, but that's a whole different ballgame of recognition versus your own. You park at Ontario Mills or Victoria Gardens and you're out to get your car. We have this wonderful thing nowadays of click, click, and you can find it, right? 
Uh, you really don't have to pay attention a whole lot. Just know the general lot you parked in, you're fine. But go before the days of the click-click. And you walk out into a parking lot to find your car. And as you walk, even if you forget where you parked it, you know if you drove something that sticks out a little further from the parking spot or not. You definitely know the color, make, and model. And your perception of finding your car is going to go a lot better than had it been a rental car. I just got that one today. What was it again? What color? I don't know. Click, click, right? Recognition is high because it's yours. Your spouse has been away on a trip for a couple of weeks. Finally, he or she comes back. And even, even though our airport security is such, you can't be right there when they walk off the plane. You've done one better. You parked your car out in the lot in Ontario, and you're actually in waiting for them to come down the escalator. You're not waiting at that whole curbside thing, man. You are so excited to see them. And as soon as they kind of turn that corner and make their way down the escalator, you are holding back to not want to run up the escalator to go say hi to them, throw a hug around them, give them a big old kiss. That's a whole lot different recognition than somebody that a friend asks you to pick up and you have to hold one of these for. And you're just hoping they find you, okay? My point is, what's true in all these cases is a deep sense of relational knowledge. You have done life together. This is someone or something that you know deeply because you spent a lot of time, there's been a lot of investment. And as a result, you have a deep relational knowledge of the other person or the other thing. The problem is sometimes in our 21st century Christian culture, we can overvalue intellectual information, can overvalue academic knowledge in place of relational, experiential knowledge. This was a problem even in the first century in Corinth. Look at what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, Meaning you can know a lot of facts, but you haven't understood what's really underneath that, what really matters most. Whoever loves God is known by God. Is your relationship with God one primarily of academic information, or is your relationship with God also connected to this idea of I'm actually knowing God, I'm getting to know him, knowing he loves me and knows me deeply? It's kind of the experience of the 12 disciples, right? That as they were spending time with Jesus during his three years, three plus years of public ministry, they didn't read books about him. They didn't attend seminars from afar. They did life with him. They watched him heal that blind man. They heard him say things that no one else had ever said before. They saw him lead and walk with grace and truth, even in the midst of conflict. They saw him do miraculous things that no other human being had ever done before. And so they had this time in with him, this connection. What are the things that even scripture doesn't tell us that they did when they threw a football around together? Okay, maybe it was a different sport, but th those kinds of connections these men had because they did life with Jesus and so they had this relational knowledge, including all the other things he had said of information. One of my favorite distinctions of what that kind of relational knowledge played out like, the resolve, the confidence, the courage, is once Jesus had ascended 
And now these men were being tried as criminals because they were talking about Jesus in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when they, the religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, realized they didn't have degrees, they hadn't been to seminary, they didn't have letters behind their names. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They were astonished because that's all the credential they had. These guys were the ones hanging out with Jesus for those three plus years. They are radically transformed and willing now to lay their lives down to be able to get out this incredible, great gospel news. <clears throat> A good question to ask yourself when you look in the mirror, when you consider your own life, is my relationship with you, Jesus, is it based primarily on things I have heard and learned my whole life from somewhat of a distance? Or is it connected to you in the way that I have come to know you because of the way that I've spent time alone with you, the way that I have poured out my soul to you, the way that I have trusted you through deep valleys and watched you be my strength? Is my knowledge of you based on the fact that I've been with you or simply that I know things about you. In your notes, knowledge of another deepens the relationship. Knowledge of another deepens the relationship. By the way, verse 16 in the passage we just read is another reason why I love this particular section of what we're looking at today. Jesus says, I have sheep that are also not of this flock, but sheep of another flock, and I'm going to get the message out and call them by name, and they're going to come and join us, and there'll be one flock and one shepherd. He was talking about you. Because remember, the mindset, especially of these Jewish religious leaders, is that when Messiah comes, he's going to come for us. We're the chosen, unique people of God. We're the ones that God made the promises to through Moses. God is going to do this for us. He's going to redeem and rescue us. Jesus is saying, I came for the world. I came to be the savior of the world, not just of this one unique people group. This would have not been great news for the Pharisees. They had a great degree of ethnic pride. Even just the language that they would use, you're either a Jew or you're an everybody else. That's what a Gentile is. Most of us sitting in this room today are everybody else's. But the great news is, Jesus came and he laid his life down for the everybody else's as well, you and me. We were included in that equation. It was always about, and here's the wild thing, the Pharisees should have known. Isaiah chapter 49, it is far too small a thing to send Messiah just to the house of Israel and Judah, but that you should be a light to the Gentiles. It was always there. There were just people who didn't want to hear it. Man, praise God that we get included into this bigger fold, this bigger flock. A passage that's actually been really important to us at Trinity Church about our need to be one people, a people united together as we walk forward, comes from Ephesians chapter 4, and, and this same thought is there as well. Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort 
to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Watch. Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. For our Team Trinity rally we did a week ago Saturday, we put the numeral one on the back of every single shirt, not to say, we're the best, but to say, we're all, not only on the same team, there's really only one number. There's only one name on the back of the jersey. It's Jesus, and we all belong to his body. That's what this passage is saying, and and it's saying that God's flock wasn't limited to one people in one time. It was for the world. It was always that way from the beginning. People had lost their way, and Jesus is reminding them, I have other sheep from other flocks, and they're going to come join us too. Man, what incredibly rich, great news for us today. Now, I'm going to make this caveat. It's a little bit different what I'm going to say next, but I think it applies in a really cool way. Right after Alfredo told you this morning, after this service, we have our small groups expo. An important time to get connected to a small group as we begin a new ministry season together. Really can't encourage you enough. One of the groups that has done such a great job in this over the course of the last year has been Steve and Diane Springstead's group. They have had that. There are sheep of other flocks that haven't joined our flock yet. And I love their mentality. Their group started with people who've been at Trinity for a long time, like them, Dale and Marty Fisher, Mike and Stephanie Barr. That was their their original kind of hub. And then another couple who, a family who's been here for a few years, two or three years, are the Sanchez family. And they kind of started with that group of four, kind of a bit eclectic in age, but then with intentionality reached out to brand new young couples who've come to Trinity in the last year, year and a half. The Spanoses, the Tylers, the Vales. And now they've got seven couples in this group that range from young and mid-20s to 71. All in the same group, all doing life together, all loving each other. And with that attitude, there's other people not yet in this flock that we need to extend that invitation to. So I want to encourage you, if you are not yet of a flock related to a small group at Trinity, man, go out there today, make a connection, let us help you get into one. We'd love to start this new year together in these kinds of burden-bearing relationships that are so much the core of who we are. Finally today, number three, Jesus lays down his life for sheep because he willingly obeys his Father. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep because he willingly obeys his Father. Back to John 10, verse 17. The reason why the Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So let's start with the end of that passage, right? We've said it. We've seen it now so many times. It's just become rote. We know that whenever Jesus does anything miraculous, we know that whenever Jesus says anything 
that is truly transformative for our lives. Like, man, that changes the game. What do you mean people from other flocks get to be a part of the flock? Whenever Jesus does those things, it's ready. When it says the Jews, we saw that very early on, it's talking about the Jewish religious leaders. They are quick to criticize, quick to antagonize, and that's exactly what they do again. But you'll note that part of the crowd said, but wait a second, does a demon-possessed guy talk like this? Does a demon-possessed guy do things like heal the guy born blind? And this has been Jesus' comment all throughout. If you don't even want to listen to me, at least do something with what you're seeing me do. That should cause you to at least go, I don't, I don't know what to do with this guy, but man, I don't know what to, how to put that in the category. That's unheard of. Then we get back to the beginning of that part of the text. Some of us have had this understanding during parts of our lives that you kind of knew a little bit of the Jesus narrative. And your understanding of the cross was that Jesus was unright, you know, wrongly condemned, that he was a martyr. He went to the cross and, and it was just because of lack of justice. The justice system was upside down. And on the one hand, those things are true. Jesus was wrongly convicted. Jesus did go to the cross unjustly. But one thing that this passage helps us with, John 10, he's not going to go to, going to, go to the cross in this gospel till John 19. So very much foreshadowing, he's going to say, nobody is taking my life from me. I'm not unjustly going to be murdered. That's what it might look like. I am willingly going to the cross to lay my life down for the sheep. Never think of Jesus in this sense as a victim. Jesus was always intentional because he was on mission. This is why he came, to seek and save the lost, and this was the way to do it. As our passage says today, to lay his life down for their good. To give his life as a ransom for many, and he did it of his own accord. We noted at the beginning today that what marks the difference between the owner, the shepherd, versus the hired hand is the fact that when challenges come, the hired hand takes off, but the shepherd is willing to lay down his life. Here in the same flow of thought, Jesus is saying he's more than willing. He's planning on it. He's expecting this is going to happen. And I want you to understand something. That very first phrase read a little differently to us. We, we read the phrase, that the Father loves me because. And that can kind of walk away in our minds a little bit. Well, would the Father have loved the Son if he hadn't? Is this a performance-based relationship that the reason why the Father loves the Son is only because he offers his life, he lays it down? And I want you to say, I don't believe that's what that passage, is, that phrase is saying. It's simply stating the fact that Jesus is going to sacrificially lay down his life for his sheep and it elicits a response, a gratitude of love from the Father who has directed his one-of-a-kind son to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. The ransom needed in order that the sheep might be what would be otherwise hopeless now can be rescued. It might come off like this, like a spouse might say to another, I love you so much on the heels of that spouse doing something significant for them. 
It doesn't mean that the first spouse never loved the other until they did that thing for them. It's just this thing that causes this expression to say, hey, I just can't communicate enough how grateful and how deeply I love you. And this last season at Trinity, there were numerous times in the midst of my wife's unwavering support and encouragement for me that I would just, in the middle of a conversation or, or, or whatever in a moment, just say, Joanna, I love you so much. It wasn't because I hadn't loved her before. It just was the occasion to make it so clear, thank you for loving me so well. It'd be the example of a child having a parent do something for them that is just kind of off the chart. They just didn't expect it. And they're so grateful for it. And they say, I love you, mom. I love you, dad. It doesn't mean that the child didn't love the parent before that moment, but it is the occasion to express this great sense of love and admiration. To brag on my wife a little more, Joanna is a great gift giver. And our kids, on numerous occasions, when Joanna has been so thoughtful and selective of what to give, let's say, at a birthday, on more than one occasion, our kids have stepped back, Mom, and they rightly said Mom, by the way, not Dad, okay? Or not Mom and Dad. Mom, they knew, right? Mom, I love this. I love you so much. This is what this expression is. The Father loves the Son already, but there's an expression of love and admiration because what the son is willing to do. Jesus wants to set the record straight. He did not come as a victim, but this is what he came to do. And this final axiom today demonstrates it in your notes. Obedience demonstrates love. Obedience demonstrates love. And what does this sacrificial kind of obedience do in us, Jesus' sheep? It elicits followership. It elicits good followership after a good shepherd. Look at the extent, look at the extreme that Jesus goes to demonstrate that we are his, that we are loved, that we are known. I am going to lay my life down. I am the good shepherd. And the interesting thing, John, this gospel writer, wrote a few other books in the New Testament, and in another place, he actually talks about an interesting axiom, axiom that really includes not just what Jesus is willing to do for us, but that it's actually meant to be an example in turn of what we do for each other. In 1 John chapter 3, it says this, this is how we know what love is. Same word, Jesus Christ laid down. Now, this is now in the past tense. Jesus saying in John 10, I will lay down now. In 1 John 3, Jesus laid down his life for us. Watch. In the very same context, and we ought to lay down, same term, our lives for our brothers and sisters. We ought to lay down our lives for the fellow members of the flock. The same phrase that we have seen three times in this passage, Jesus saying, I will lay down my life is not meant to be something we simply admire that Jesus has done for us, which we should. But it's meant to be an example of how we're in turn supposed to love each other sacrificially 
saying, I'm not going to have my agenda first, but I want to reach out and I want to look out for yours, your well-being, your best interest. And so apparently it's not just something done for us, but done as an example for us in turn to live out towards others in our worlds. I love this last point in your notes. What an amazing idea, sheep that shepherd. Sheep that are called to be shepherds ourselves in one another's lives. So let's be those kind of sheep this week, confident in how deeply the shepherd loves us and what he sacrificed for us. And ready to live outward focused, sacrificial lives towards his sheep that are in our flock right here at Trinity. He's leading you not only towards him to follow him more closely, but in caring for the other sheep that you're following alongside of. So let's keep this idea out in front of us this week. Celebrate the magnitude of the good shepherd's love for you demonstrated at the cross. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as a people who are just so grateful for what we've been reminded of today, that Jesus willingly, not begrudgingly, not because he got caught, not because he was the victim of anything, but willingly, strategically, volitionally went to the cross on our behalf. He knew that's what was needed. That's the only way that rescue would have been accomplished was his blood spilt in our place. We are so grateful for that kind of a shepherd who isn't just even willing to lay down his life, but did. Help us walk in that incredible joy this week. Walk in that, just the magnitude of sacrifice laid out, made for us. If you're here today and you've never responded to this incredible invitation of the gospel, if you've never said, Jesus, I want to be part of that flock, I want to be known that way, I want to be loved that way. I want to be accepted that way. I want to know what it means for someone to lay down their life for me that when I need it. Man, you, you have a great opportunity right now to A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Admit that you are a wayward sheep who needs a shepherd to bring you into the flock. B, believe. Believe that Jesus is the good shepherd. Believe that Jesus is the only Savior available. And see is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I want to be a part of the flock through what you've done on my behalf. And I want to live my life following your example, being a part of your flock. You can make that decision right now, and I would encourage you, don't let another moment go by until you do. Father, we love you. We're so grateful to be a part of your flock. This week, would we be those kinds of shepherds to one another as well, laying down our lives for them? We love you and we praise Jesus' great name. In